Welcome to The Forest Garden, a podcast for gardeners who want to upgrade their landscapes into biodiverse food forest systems. On today's episode, we'll be interviewing Dave Jackie, ecological designer and author of Edible Forest Gardens. Today's topic is ground covers and how to best integrate them into a food forest context But obviously, because we're interviewing the man who literally wrote the book on the topic of this podcast, we dip into a wide range of topics on this episode. I assure you, you will not be disappointed whether you're someone who's just getting into forest gardening or someone who's been doing it for a long time. Stick with us. Dave Jackie, thank you so much for being with us. We are overjoyed to have you. And, you know, this podcast is called The Forest Garden based off of your work, the Edible Forest Gardens book. Why don't we start things off with who you are, how you got interested in forest gardening, and sort of how that book became to be. Hey, uh, Michael and Ben, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, geez, who am I? That's a, that's the perennial question, isn't it? It's not an annual question, it's a perennial question. I have been interested in ecosystem design since I was very young. My earliest memory is when I was three years old. I lived, grew up in Connecticut, in, in Western Connecticut, and my parents took me with them to go into New York City to, to go pick up a business associate at the airport. And we drove into New York City in 1963, and my eyes burned from the air pollution. And at three years old, I knew something was wrong with the world. <laughs> And that really that 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 really framed a lot of my a lot of my uh, d- direction in life that experience, and I, I also escaped my family my crazy family by going into the woods, spending a lot of time in the woods and getting solace and connection and and space to be myself out there. So I'm eternally grateful for that, and and so in a way, writing the book was payback for that. You know, more more practically. I went to a school called Simon's Rock College in Great Barrington, Mass. And the idea of Simon's Rock is the last two years of high school is a waste of time academically for a lot of kids. So I went there after 10th grade and I had to choose a a, a major (laughs) at 16 years old in college. And the only thing that made any sense to me was environmental studies. So I took uh, a full year of ecology starting at 16 and I turned 17 near the end of that year, the whole year I was just going, why are we not applying this knowledge to how human societies are put together? And I, that got me in the field as a try, trying to be, figure out how to be an ecosystem designer, an ecological designer before I even had uh, words for that. And, 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 you know, that was, I mean, in a way, I'm a contemporary with uh, David Holmgren in terms of, uh, you know, we're a similar age. He's a little bit older than I am, but, you know, I was trying to invent my way into what he and Miles ended up calling permaculture at the same time. And that's actually, I'm really glad that I didn't know about permaculture until I was a, a little, a little already on my path because I've had one foot in permaculture, no more than one foot in permaculture my whole life uh, and not really bought in and didn't identify with permaculture in the way that a lot of people do. And so I have, I feel like I've had more intellectual freedom and willingness to question. And so, you know, I started doing land use planning in undergrad school, graduated in 1980, uh, had heard about permaculture, one book when I was 19, wrote away for that to Australia because it wasn't available in the U.S. yet. Got my copy from Australia, the first edition. And that took me, you know, 5, 10, 20 steps ahead of where I'd gotten on my own. Took my permaculture course with Bill Mollison in 1981, the second course he taught in the U.S. And, you know, I was debating whether I should go become a chiropractor. And then that course, I decided to do permaculture or ecological design instead of going being a chiropractor. If I'd been a chiropractor, I'd actually be able to retire (laughs) <laughs> but at the moment, I'm probably going to have to bop till I drop working. So, you know, whatever. And then some years later, you know, do, doing permaculture, trying to teach permaculture, trying to find clients who were actually would pay me to do permaculture design was not easy for a bunch of years. I went to the Conway School of Landscape Design, 83, 84, got my master's degree there, went out on my own doing design work and 
ended up moving to Western Mass again. And that was when I met Eric Tonsmeyer. Um, I was actually trying to get a job doing permaculture design for Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health in Lenox, Mass. I was on the ver. I was just just after a year and a half of of contacts and trying to get the job. I was offered the opportunity to write a proposal for them. And the next day, the guy that made that gave me that that offer to write a proposal met Eric Tonsmeyer and called me and told me that he was going to have Eric do a competing proposal to mine. And I call. I said, "What's this guy's name? And who is he? And what's his phone number?" He gave me his phone number. I called Eric. He said, "We shouldn't be competing. We should be cooperating. There aren't that many of us around." So that's when he and I started collaborating. You know, in that in that collaboration over the next year, year and a half, or whatever it was, we we were like lamenting about how there are all these books coming about out about permaculture, but they're all from people in other countries. You know, someone needed to write a book about permaculture in the U.S. And we're like, well, what, what book needs to be written for the U.S.? Well, we should write a book on forest gardening. And that's really how we decided to write the book together. And we started doing workshops together. And somehow Chelsea Green Publishing kept falling in my lap. And fi- the final straw on that was that uh, our, the guy who became our editor ended up taking our workshop. And he said, write a book proposal. So we did. And that's how we got that project and started working on that in 1997 and, you know, traveling to England and, and all over the East coast, looking to try to find forest gardens that we can, you know, analyze and assess and, and use as case studies. And, and of course, you know, we intended to write a 150 page book. I was going to write the, 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 the verbiage and Eric was going to do the, the plant database, the matrices, matrices for the back of the book. And I got, chapter one and chapter two written the introduction and the vision chapters and then I had supposed to I was intending to write one single chapter on the ecology of forests and I realized how the hell am I going to do that I can't I can't do that and so (laughs) I hit this wall and I had I had writing block for a year my father died and all kinds of other shit went up went down in my in my family life and I ended up kind of being forced from internal dynamics to turn the book into what it became because I couldn't, every time I tried to write the short book, I got blocked. And every time the only way I could find a way to get unblocked was to let the book tell me what it wanted to be. And it was a very painful birth process. I'll say it took, took eight years and almost bankrupted me. And I was pretty insane by the end of the project. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but you know it's it's been good because lately uh, the last last month or so i've actually been doing editing notes on volume one for a guy who's got the rights to publish in french and he's in the middle of translating the book into french so i've, uh, it's, I've been i've been rereading it for the first time in many years and i'm like yeah there's some good shit in here and and i'm um you know i also see a lot of places where my thinking has evolved or I could have said things better, but overall I'm, I'm pretty pleased with what I, what's in volume one. And, and I look forward to doing the same process of reading volume two and making editing comments for that. So I don't know if we'll ever, I don't know if Chelsea Green will ever want to do a second, a second edition. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I want to, but you know, it's not that many, that not that many changes that I would make. So I don't know. I hope that answered your question. Kind of a long-winded answer, but uh, there you go. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to, I'm sure for both Mike and I, I'd like to thank you for for writing that with Eric. It's a big inspiration for me. I still remember the day I cracked that book open and it was a huge influence uh, on me and, and most of my friends in this space as well. So just a, just a big thank you to you guys. That's the reason we did it. I mean, <laughs> to have an influence... Yep help people along it's it's definitely it definitely seems to have uh changed the conversation up to the conversation there's a lot more books on the topic out now by other people giving their own take which i think is awesome you know i mean i haven't gone back into the science of ecology to see see what what ecologists have learned that i might want to put in the book but in my practice and my teaching i've really there's a lot of solidity there and a lot of it i don't think is going to change in terms of the theory and the and the and the, the background I think there's a lot to learn about design process or processes that we can use and 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 get some off-the-shelf polycultures that work in different habitats and different microclimates and whatever. That's the work of the next couple hundred years. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I mean, Mike, unless you want to, if there's any other questions you have on the Edible Forest Gardens book, maybe we could dive into some edible forest gardening 
and uh, and talk talk shop a little bit. Yeah. So Dave, you were talking about some of the things that about sort of how your um, perspective has changed, and I feel that way about my own work and stuff that I write. I think through grad school, if I write something six months ago, I look at it and it's like I have a completely different perspective. Do, should we start there? At some point, we do want to talk about ground covers, something that we don't talk about enough. But but yeah. So in terms yeah, yeah. Of, in terms of how your mentality has shifted, what are, what are some of the the things there? Oh well, to where to begin? First, I'll say what hasn't shifted. You know, I feel very strongly that the design process that I laid out in volume two, chapters three and four is extremely important and extremely solid. There's so much that I've learned in the in the intervening. God, it's, all, it's coming up on 20 years. I can't believe that. It was 2005, the books came out. It's now 2023. So that 18 years ago, this summer, the books came out. The first book came out, volume one. You know, just the self-reflection and the internal landscape learnings that I've that I've garnered from doing ecological design process the way I talk about in the book has really just deepened my understanding of how ecological process and ecological principles live inside of me at least and I think in uh, most other people and I think that's improved my ability to educate people about design processes and to deprogram us from some of the empire mind bullshit that we've been handed in Western culture, the colonialist mindset that we've, and patriarchal mindset we've been handed, it's just in the, in the ways we think. So, so, I mean, that's a, that's a whole conversation we don't need to get into tonight, but I just want to, I just want to underline that, that there's, there's a lot of deep inner, inner work that's embedded in that, embodied in that design process that I think is really critical for um, mindful awareness of how how we humans uh, apply ourselves or project our stuff into the landscape. Um, and the design process can really teach us a lot about that. So, and then you get into the actual implementing in the garden and the garden start teaching in a whole, a whole other set of realms there. That's the really, that's really cool stuff. I think all the successional stuff in volume one, I still very much appreciate. You know, some people don't have a lot of, they don't see a lot of value in what I, what I coined as the unified old field theory of succession. But I think it's a very powerful tool for helping us ask questions and make observations. After getting a divorce and losing, losing the homes that I started in New Hampshire and starting over again here in Western Mass, Western Massachusetts, um, really appreciating that tool of the unified old field theory as a tool for helping me ponder my behavior in the landscape and how I'm affecting other me. So that that's another one that feels really solid. The places where where I think there's been uh, some really interesting growth is and I you know I'm I'm a little bit embarrassed about a couple things. The first one not kind of a nitpicky one but actually pretty pretty important as I was teaching over the years and realizing I was using a lot of jargon. One of the worst pieces of jargon, there's two, two, two words or phrases that I consider the worst pieces of jargon on the planet. And the first word is permaculture. And I don't want to go too much into that, but it's, it's, it's such a non-word that you can project whatever the heck you want into it and make it mean whatever you want. And I think we can see that in, in the movement to some degree that how diverse the, the movement is in people's perspective, which has also... Uh, has has some problems. And the other phrase that is all over the Edible Forest Gardens books is the phrase dynamic accumulator, which if you say it to someone who doesn't know what we're talking about, they go, huh, what's a dynamic accumulator? Is that like a hoarder? Someone, some, some, some person who's like, you know, a crow collecting or, 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 or pack rat, you know, <laughs> they're very dynamic, very, very charismatic person who's, a, who's hoarding all kinds of stuff. No, I, I, and I, I've, I'm trying, and I'm actually in the French edition. I'm, I'm having him use the phrase "mineral accumulator" because that actually tells you what the plant is doing, for God's sake. And, and how I missed that. And you know, we, 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 Eric and I used that phrase. We got it from Robert Couric, and uh, I wish we had caught that 18 years ago. <laughs> but so it goes. You know, the other big piece. There's, there's two other kind of bigger bigger arenas of change that I would, I would, I would call out. And the first is, and this is kind of the simplest one to talk about is the, the, the fact that in volume one, chapter four, the, the social structure of ecosystems chapter, 
your ecosystem social structure chapter, there's only four pages about guilds. And I've learned so much more about guilds and realized that there is a th- in, in, the, in the book, I only talk about two, two kinds of guilds, the resource partitioning guilds and the mutual support guilds uh, that were discussed by scientists, but implicit in the conversation throughout the whole book, especially when you get into volume two, is the third kind of guild that is there that, that, that ecologists have also talked about without, and you know, all the ecologists have just been using the one word guild to describe different relationships between species. And they've been having arguments for years about what a guild is because they're not clear that they're talking about different relationships. So the third kind of guild is community function guild, which is basically a suite of species, a set of species that are all in the same community niche and therefore perform the same community function like canopy herbivore, predator or a canopy nut tree or a ground cover as we get into ground covers in a little while. You know, the, the, any 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 two or more species that are that are ground covers are in a community function guild of ground covers, and it's so basic that it was overlooked. And I actually conflated the community function guild with the resource partitioning guild because it turns out if you're going to have a community function guild, because the species are in the same community niche, they tend to use the same resources at the same time in the same place, and therefore they're likely to compete, and therefore any community function guild that you have in your garden, you, you need to also make sure that there are resource partitioning guild as well. So you minimize competition. So those two are very closely allied very frequently. Um, and the mutual support guild is more like what Mollison talked about when he used the one word guild. And people often conflate the word guild with the word polyculture and they're very different things because guilds talk about relationships between species and polycultures are only really about who's growing in the same patch of ground. And I, I would, I wish I had made all of that. Wish I had been clear about all that and made all that clear in the book. But I, I do have an intention once I finish the edits for the translation of French. I do want to start doing some more writing and, 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 and discuss that and, and, and lay that out in, in more clarity, um, and as well as talk about the second major piece of change that I would that I that I would call out uh, in the last bunch of years. And that is it's it's this is more recent. The fundamental strategy of forest gardening is ecosystem mimicry. We're mimicking forest ecosystems in the way we design our gardens. And understanding mimicry as a uh, as an adaptive or evolutionary strategy, you know, then leads us to ask the question, what are we actually mimicking at a fundamental level. And I realized that we're mimicking four Ps, the properties of ecosystems, the principles of ecosystems, and the patterns and processes of ecosystems. And the more I worked with that and and, and worked into that, I realized that the properties like um, self-renewal, self-renewing fertility, self-propagation, production of clean air, production of clean water, stability, resilience, improvement of soil quality over time. All those properties of ecosystems that we want our gardens to to embody are emergent properties. And that means they're not properties that arise from any given individual species itself. And so what we're trying to do in design is arrange elements so that those properties emerge. We're not pushing or forcing. That's a colonialist empire mindset is to push and force and, and control. And what we're, what we're actually trying to do is to, is to foster a system and, and support and design, design and support and interact with the system so that the inherent nature of that system gives us the gifts that we're looking to, 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 to meet our needs with. And um, it's a very different orientation and I'm much more consciously linking it to the mindset of colonialism and patriarchy and empire because that's really what we're dealing with, the separation mindset. And so the properties arise as emergent properties, but there are principles and there's a, a, a really critical link between the properties and the principles because it turns out that when you look at the guilds in ecosystems in a clear way that each one of those three kinds of guilds, the community function guilds, the resource partitioning guilds, and the mutual support guilds, each one of those 
is an embodiment of specific principles. And each one of those embodiments of those principles causes certain emergent properties to arise. And so there's a relationship between the ecological principles and the emergent properties. And if we can get clear on which principles cause which properties to arise, then we can be much more functional and effective designers to create systems that actually have the properties that we want. So the Community Function Guild is basically the principle of redundancy principle, as I like to call it, in action. And the Resource Partition Guild is, is a reflection of the reality of what competition is and how, it's, how it operates in ecosystems and what I call the polyculture partitioning principle. Um, and then the Mutual Support Guild is a, is a reflection of the functional, the pr principle of functional interconnection where the needs of one element meet the yields. The, the yields of one element meet the needs of another element. I won't go into the more detail on all that, but, but that relation between the properties and the principles is very critical and it helps me appreciate a lot of the Molisonian permaculture principles in a, in a way and understand why I've had a challenge with Holmgren's permaculture principles because they're not systems principles, they're behavioral principles, Holmgren's principles, whereas a lot of Molison's principles, not all of them, but a lot of Molison's principles are much more about how do you design systems that, that, that work and, and, and work like an ecosystem. And, that, and that's that, that understanding of the relationship between properties and principles is, is critical. And so what we're doing is we're applying those principles to the patterns and processes of the system in order for those properties to arise. And so that's a very kind of deeply philosophical kind of essentialist kind of looking at, at, at what's, what's under the hood of ecological design that I've really come to grasp by teaching and, and designing, teaching ecological design, designing forest gardens and other, other kinds of landscape designs and, and other system designs, social systems and everything. And all those principles apply across the board. And, and it makes me a much more aware and, and I think more humble and powerful designer to, to have that understanding. So those are the pieces that I would really want to change is those, the, the guilds and, and the patterns and processes, understanding what, what we're mimicking and how those relate together. It's, it's, and it's interesting to me how the understanding the guilds more clearly helped me understand this other piece that's kind of more the under the hood fundamental understanding of how 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 nature works yeah that was, that was very very well put dave good um, i'm glad i was yeah. gonna ask if you understood what i was talking about <laughs> at all <laughs> oh, yeah. perfectly coherent and, and and really yeah beautifully put and i like how you tied it into the cultural maybe the cultural origins for some of our our practices and how we sort of lost our way a little bit in terms of the controlling, the pushing on the landscape as, a, as opposed to working, working with nature. We're pretty um, whacked as a, as a culture, uh, <laughs> I would say. Definitely. Just to double click a little bit further on the guilds and uh, transition into our topic today, what if, if you could paint a picture of, you know, uh, some of these guilds that, that incorporate all some or all of the, the guild types you, you mentioned and some of the, the, the benefits or, or the occurrences that happen when things are starting to work in that synergy, when you see those relationships start to form and really ramp up, um, how, how would that look different than maybe a, a typical, maybe someone who has a forest garden but hasn't really thought through some of these, these concepts before? What would you say someone could expect once they're able to utilize some of these, these practices of, of guilds? For me, it's critical to be clear when I'm when I mean to say the word polyculture versus when I mean to say the word guild and which kind of guild I'm talking about, um, because that conflation of the word polyculture with the word guild, I think, has caused a lot of confused thinking and poor design and observation. So whenever there's more than one species in a patch, you have a polyculture. The question is, is it an effective polyculture? And in order to be an effective polyculture, it has to contain multiple guilds. Not all guilds are polycultures. Not all polycultures contain guilds. If you look at the three sisters polyculture of corn, dry corn, dry beans, and winter squash, that's one polyculture. It has three species, at least in the basic formulation of those three species. And I've been able to identify 13 different guilds in that one polyculture of three species by the way I define guilds. 
there are at least 13 guilds in that in that polyculture because of the different kinds of relationships that are going on there. And that is why that polyculture over yields and you get more yield per square foot or per thousand square feet or whatever by growing those three crops in a polyculture than if you than if you grow them in a monoculture because of those interactions that reduce the competition, that increase the harmony, decrease the stress, you know, all those things. For us to really take forest gardening to the level that I think it can go, we have to get really clear intellectually or mentally uh, and language-wise around these terms and what we're observing and, and the questions we're asking and what we're trying to design. So let me try and, and get more on the ground and practical when we in the in the topic area that you wanted to get into which is the ground covers okay so you know i'm not sure quite how how other people define the term ground cover i know that among among various people some people say anything up to three feet tall is a ground cover and to me that, that's not a ground cover if it's three feet tall that's the herbaceous layer the ground ground covers are you know more in the 18 inches or under category of, 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 of height for me. And the main purpose of ground covers is to outcompete weeds and fill the niche space of the ground layer so that you can direct succession where you want it to go rather than where some other entity wants it to go or entities want it to go. And in order to fill those niches in the ground layer uh, as well as you can, it's good to have clumpers, runners, and, and mat formers as, as growth habits. These are behaviors of the plant in terms of how they, you know, a clumper tends to be tap-rooted or, you know, doesn't have a rhizome or a stolon or some other vegetative way of propagating horizontally. It's kind of a stand and deliver kind of species. A runner is going to have a rhizome or a stolon or root suckers or something that, that will spread horizontally. A mat former often runs. There are clumping mat farmers. There are running mat farmers. They're very, the mat farmers are generally very low to the ground and they form a very solid mat. Like an example of, 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 of a mat farmer would be a juga reptans or bugleweed. It's a non North American native mint family plant, but it's an incredible ground cover. I mean, this stuff, it's got a basal rosettes of leaves, the stems kind of spiral along the surface of the ground and they keep rooting. So it's not really, a, I guess you'd call it stolons. It's not, it's more like stem rooting than, than, a, than a stolon, but stolons are basically a modified stem. And it's, it's a very dense ground cover. There's all kinds of named cultivars of it on the market that have different colors. But I have planted like at Wellesley College Botanic Garden at the Edible Ecosystem Teaching Garden that we put there. It's a six-tenth of an acre forest garden that, that Keith Salzberg and I mostly designed together and implemented together over a bunch of years. We planted a juga reptans as a ground layer underneath three additional layers of shrubs and herbs above the ground cover layer. And... The ajuga reptans, even though we had three dense layers of vegetation above the ajuga reptans, it was a solid, tight, green, evergreen, mostly evergreen mat underneath three layers of dense vegetation. And that is an awesome ground cover because you know there's going to be very little light underneath the ajuga, ajuga reptans that's available for anything else to get access to sunlight and be able to grow there. And there aren't that many species of ground covers that'll do that. It'll form that very low running mat that will just be super dense and, and outcompete other things. There's also the lamb's ears. It makes these really thick, very, very fuzzy leaves. Lamb's ear is a good name for it. It has that, it has that look and feel. The leaves die back in this in this in the wintertime, but you know, they're a solid, a solid mulch layer. And then it sprouts right over the top of that the next spring. And that forms a nice kind of a, a, a mat as well, but it's not shade tolerant. I don't know if a juga could grow underneath that, but boy, I should, we should, someone should try that because <laughs> that would be incredible. You know, you've got two species there that the ajuga reptans and the, and the, uh, the, the, the lamb's ear, they're both mint family plants. They occupy a similar territory. They're both the running, running mat formers. 
they're likely to compete because they're they're occupying the same space. They're using the same resources in pretty much the same way, except that the di- the, par- the partitioning comes in that it might be possible. I, I kind of doubt it, given how thick the lambs area is. But the Ajuga reptans is so shade tolerant that it might actually be able to coexist, and they might be able to occupy the, a similar space and and not and not compete. Dave, one question I had uh, in regards to the comp- competitive nature of some of these ground covers, both with each other, but as far as the competition with the other plants in the system, uh, I remember I'm thinking back to when I had a forest garden in, in Tennessee and thinking that, you know, I had my mulch layer and, and thinking like, well, I need to plant a ground cover for because who knows what's going to grow up. And then I had, you know, some some native plants come up, uh, some native ground covers come up. And and it was a shift in thinking from like, I have to do something to to add a ground cover. Do I need to make sure I have a healthy ground cover in my system that's that's functional uh, for, for my purposes? And then as far as like the actual selection, if I do choose to plant, it's also funny to think that, you know, when we when we plant a ground cover near a tree, because we planted it, it won't compete. But if we let nature take its course, something else will come in that that will compete with that tree, which may not always be true. So when you're when you're selecting a a, a ground cover, what do you look for in the like the root the root style to know that it's not going to be competitive with your tree? Let's let's begin responding to that question by acknowledging how little we know. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, that's <laughs> didn't mean really, to put you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, uh, I mean, this is this is this is, you know, I just gave a I just gave a, a public and I was saying to people, we can't compare forest gardens of 2023 with conventional agriculture of 2023 because conventional agriculture in Western culture has been evolving and developing for thousands of years, and we're just getting started with forest gardening with so little that we know. I mean, I do know that I don't want quackgrass around my fruit trees because I know it will compete with them. So quackgrass is one of the things I am trying to outcompete. I, you know, the reason I'm talking about a juger reptans and lambs ears is because they're mint family plants and they have short-throated flowers that provide a lot of nectar over a long period of time. They also have multiple flowers on each floret, so they're they're attracting beneficial insects in a way that quackgrass and a lot of other stuff won't in terms of pollinators that will be around to help fertilize my fruit trees. You know, and then there's ground covers that are also edible or ground covers, which, you know, can be a conflict in terms of use. Cause if you're harvesting your ground covers, you're, you're taking some of the leaves or some of the plants away and leaving a, leaving a room for, for, for a niche for something else to fill the space. But, uh, you know, if you're doing a mineral accumulator or nitrogen fixing ground cover, that's that's fine. And, and you know, I mean, I've got I've got a pretty good spread of Dutch white clover that I've been sowing. And if that starts coming up under fruit trees, I'm not going to complain about that. I'm, that sikes. That's great if it moves in. Right. Because it's it's providing multiple services. Exactly. Um, it's, 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 yeah. it's, it's doing the bees. It's doing the nitrogen fixation. It's, it's preventing erosion. It's keeping the ground cool. It's, you know, you're not going to get as much nitrogen fixation in the shade of the fruit tree by, by a long shot. So most of your nitrogen fixtures really need to be out in the, in the, in the sunny area away from the crown. It's still in the root zone of the tree, but you know, anyway, we can, you can, you can get into all kinds of nitty gritty, but your question really is a, is a question of succession because it's a, a a change, a change in, in, in community composition or structure over time is basically what succession is. And so your, your question is, if, if what comes in on its own is stuff that's okay for me to have, is that a problem? No, absolutely not. But it's the kind of thing where you have to go to the three causes of succession uh, you know, and, 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 and understand you know, what niches are available or sites are available. Uh, and wh- why were those species available to that site, and and why are they performing better than the than than the opposition? If if those are a fr- a f- basically a free resource that shows up, and they're and you analyze those plants, and they're they're like you you can see that they're shallow rooted. They're not going to be competing with your with your fruit trees. They're they're not going to induce a high 
bacterial soil like grasses tend to do. They're more likely to be something that would be adapted to a forest floor. Then you're, they're likely to be more fungal dominated soil compatible or generating fungal dominated soil food web, which is better for woody plants, generally speaking. You know, you have to evaluate this, each species that shows up on its own and decide if you want to keep it or not. You don't have to. You, you can just go with it and see what happens. But, you know, if you want to be a mindful designer and, and like directing succession, that's what you need to do is ask those questions. So that also means you need to understand the fruit trees or the nut trees that, you're, that they're coming in under and, you know, what's the root system of those fruit trees. And apples tend to be flat rooted with sinkers and pears are the same are similar and you know, then you've got hazels, which tend to be deeper rooted, according to some people, and shallow rooted to other people. But chestnuts are much definitely tap rooted, but they're still going to have their horizontal roots. So, you know, then you can start thinking about and, and observing, even digging up and yanking things apart, seeing what's going on in the, in the soil root zone, deciding if you think it's causing competition or not. But, you know, that's where going online and researching your species and getting a sense of native or non-native, what's whatever it is. You know, what what might they be doing? Because every species has more than one interaction with its environment. And so we want to understand as many of those as possible so we can decide if it's got multiple beneficial functions or multiple negative functions or both. And, and what are we going to do about it, if anything? Dave, I have a question just about the actual implementation, like the boots on the ground, getting your ground cover established in a forest gardening context or just in a backyard yeah. context. Like, Let's, it, let's just say it is a backyard context and you have a large uh, shade tree like a sugar maple or, 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 you know, it could be a fruit producing tree or a nut tree or whatever, but you have a lot of shade and you want to, yeah. you want to put in maybe sweet woodruff or, or something that's really shade tolerant. And it's yeah. a, it, let's say it's a decent sized area. How many plugs or how, how much ground, <laughs> you know, like that's something that I think people, when they, when they learn about forest gardening or whatever, they're like, oh, I can just buy one plant and I'm going to put it in and it's going to yeah, right. this yeah. whole area. And people don't realize that, you know, when it comes no, to no. design or landscape architecture, people are putting in a, a like, you know, yeah. plugs are getting heavily placed in to cover that area. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so, so even before you get to that question, the question is, similar to what, what Ben asked, what vegetation is already there and do you want that vegetation or not? In my situation here, I've got an acre of what used to be lawn that I'm converting over. And so I'm dealing with a lot of grass. A lot of those grasses are pretty hardy, like, like the quack grass, they're, they're rhizomatous, they're, they're hard to control. And so, uh, and, and they will, they will uh, love the mulch environment that I'm going to generate in the early going to help get my plants, my trees and my, and my, er, my herbaceous ground covers and stuff established. So they will, they will outcompete the things that I want to have to get the diversity that I'm looking for and the functions that I'm looking for. So you really got to think through your site preparation and, and all that, you know, very often I'm, I'm putting down one or two layers of, of large pieces of cardboard that I get from a furniture store and putting and in some, in some cases, um, I'm, I'm putting erosion control, coconut fiber erosion control fabric or something like that on top of the cardboard to give me two to three to four years of sheet mulch coverage underneath my trees to, so that I don't, don't have the grass competition with the trees that I'm trying to get established. And that gives me more time to propagate the ground covers. And then to, to slowly implement them and, and, and let them self-propagate, which saves a ton of money. You're either going to spend money or you're going to spend time. But, you know, in my evolving plant database, I have a cell for each species. I have height and I have a cell, a cell of data for width. And then I have a cell of data for spacing. And the spacing is often similar to, but not usually exactly the same as the width of the plant. And it's often the spacing is closer than the width of the plant. And so if you have a if you have a two foot diameter plumper, you're likely to be play, planting that at, at you know 14 to 18 inches. 18 inches diameter is not even one and a half square feet, I don't think. Right. And so if you've got 
500 square feet and you're going to be planting things at 18 inch centers that's hundreds of plants and that's where it's worth buying going to a place like new moon nursery or north creek nursery or some other wholesale place and buying them by landscape plugs by the flat they're much cheaper it's more like the one to two dollars per plant rather than five to ten dollars per perennial that you get in, in typical retail nurseries and it's much easier to get a, a patch established with multiple species on mass but still even at the flat you know you buy you buy a several flats at 50 to 70 dollars a flat that's got maybe 50 or 30 plants in a flat that's still not covering a huge area when you're talking about a large forest garden and trees that are going to get big but that's one reason why I try to often try to choose plants that are rhizomatous and spread spread that way so that I can get pockets established you know and, and when I'm doing that sheet mulch with cardboard and the coir there's places that tend to rot where the cardboard because the reason i use the coconut fiber erosion control mat is that it holds the cardboard down and makes it look decent and also allows the sunlight and the air to get to the cardboard so the cardboard doesn't rot immediately like if i put wood chips over the cardboard the, the cardboard's gone in a few months it just it just it just rots away under the wood chips because it's all moist and, and and the earthworms love it so if you put the erosion control fabric over the top you can you can knock out the things that you're that you're sheet mulching, you can sheet mulch around any plants you want to keep and let them still have access to sunlight. And then you can, then you can really control the, the, uh, the, the ground layer and, 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 and install what you want and give them a much higher chance of success than the weeds. And the places that tend to rot in that system first, where the cardboard rots first is where the water tends to puddle. That's, and that's where that's where the cardboard breaks down and starts stuff starts poking through and that's where I tend to plant my perennials to begin establishing my ground cover is where where the cardboard's breaking down first or I'll just put a put a windrow on contour of compost on the on top of the cardboard and plant right into it and then the, the perennials take over the windrow and they start spreading from there so I, I there's a lot of different ways to do that but I tend I tend to go patch by patch and area by area and you know I, I am if in my own garden I've got a situation I've been I've been here for 10 years I got I got overexcited and 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 I got a bit ahead of myself and I have very large square footages of area where I've got trees that are getting pretty large and I still haven't planted into the sheet mulch underneath those trees and this is the year that I really got to do that and that that involves me you know dividing perennials in other places in my garden and moving them around stuff like garlic chives and chives with aromatic pest confusers and quite delicious and attract good pollinators and also have some some mineral accumulations uh function you know those are easy the, 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 i have i have plenty of those around my garden you know things like robin's plantain which is one of my favorite natives and you know it's a little bit slower to spread but i've got enough of that that i can begin dividing that take the holes that I, where I back with, with compost and the Robin's plantain around where I take it out from, will just fill that back in again. And I can then start establishing Robin's plantain elsewhere. But I'm also trying, I'm buying in flats of other species, you know, 50 to 30, 30 to 50 to landscape plugs per flat. I'm using one flat of a species to test it out. You know, I'm bringing in Packer, Oboveda, round-leaved ragwort. It's a more drought tolerant than the golden ground, so the Packer aurea. They're great ground covers. They're native. They've got a lot of relationships with good beneficial insects. They're aster family plants. The, the golden ground is a little more moisture and, and shade and, uh, and, and, and shade tolerant. The, the, the round-leaved ragwort is, is more sun and dry tolerant, and I've got very sandy soils, and they're getting incredible flowers. It is bright yellow on a cloudy day it's like you have the sun in your yard when they're flowering it just it just lightens up the space in a big way uh sweet woodruff you know similar thing that one that one that one is pretty expansive and it does it's outcompeted the chrysic going virginia green and gold that's why ground a native ground cover early spring flowering beneficial insect attracting ground cover that i like a lot but it's not that competitive it's it's low on the competitive hierarchy and the, you know, and then there's things like 
uh, Walt Steiny or Frigerioides or GM. Some people, I'm not sure which which the which is the official genus name for that. It's gone back and forth. I think it's Walt Steiny again. Walt Steiny or Frigerioides, barren strawberry rose family has a little strawberry like thing that really has no flavor, but it's a nice crunch in your salad. But it's a really great ground cover. It takes acid. I, I grow, I'm growing that under my blueberries. And it, it does well under the blueberries, and and it and, and I, I like that one there. Uh, so that one I'm I'm that one's spreading around on its own, and I'm I'm supporting that. So you know it's like you find the species that like your place, and then you spread them around. But you also I'm trying to also get diversity. So there's there's a mix of of, of buying stuff in or or getting it from someone else for free or trade or whatever, and and propagating my own stuff either from seed or from rhizomes of stuff I, I brought in from years prior, but yeah, it's a lot of plants. It, it's, it's the ground covers, the herbaceous, the herbaceous layers are actually more, much more expensive than the shrub and tree layers because the shrubs and trees get so much bigger and take up more space over time. Dave, how do you feel about uh, ground covers that are fruiting? So like, for example, like the ground, the raspberry ground covers, I, in my experience, they've haven't been as, Hardy, not hardy isn't the right word. They just haven't done as well as I would have liked. And also I'm suspicious about their ability to actually produce a crop of fruit in um, an area with shade or light shade. And even the, yeah. even the idea of like planting strawberries that produce a, and like not the barren strawberry, but a strawberry that produces a, a fruit. I mean, that's something that I think that people who yeah. are, when they're first introduced to forest gardening, like they have this idea that they're gonna plant things at the ground cover layer and there's going to be a, a really big crop of strawberries that comes in with, <laughs> you know, with the shade being cast down on top of it. So yeah. What's your, what's your experience with that? Uh, well, I agree with you in general, you know, fruits and nuts are one of the last things on the, they're at the bottom of the plant's energy budget wish list. So when a plant makes, makes uh, photosynthate out of sunshine during the day, it's got to put some of that aside to burn overnight, to just keep alive overnight. It's going to put some of that into protecting itself from herbivores and from competition. It's going to put some of that into storing energy for the following year and, uh, you know, getting its roots down where the water is, if it's a dry year or whatever. And then if it has energy left over, it'll say, okay, now I'm going to make some fruits or nuts. And so, so all those other things are higher priority for plants, generally speaking. So, you know, you're, 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 you're less, you're not likely to get, generally speaking, you're not likely to get very high yields or very sweet yields. Sometimes you get like with some of the, some of the native gooseberries, I've seen pretty high volume of fruit in the shade, but it's not as sweet because there's not as much sugar in it because there's not as much sunshine. And I think that's that's a reality but you know that's not to say that those fruits aren't valuable you know i mean it's more fruit than you'd have if you didn't have gooseberries in the shade right um and it's got some mineral value and some some vitamin value i'm sure it just doesn't taste as good maybe you know so uh, you know you you got to you got to think think about the yield of the system not the yield of a crop in a place necessarily because if you've got uh, a, a thinner berry crop underneath a canopy berry crop, you're getting two crops off the same space. And that's still more yield than if you had bare ground underneath that canopy berry crop. And so that's one of the ways to think about it. But I do, I do tend to, to push people to think about yields in the shade that are more appropriate for the shade, like leaf crops, because some, some species, some of the, some of the edible uh, greens, they actually make bigger leaves in the shade than they do in the sun. Which makes sense. They're, they have they need more leaf area in order to capture more sunlight, and and uh, you know or a root crop that you know that slowly accumulates roots or a, a spring ephemeral that does all its all its work you know for for a month in the spring before the trees leaf out and like, like ramps that actually use the shade during a dormancy to protect itself from the harsh summer environment, but is actually using you know, pretty close to full sunshine in the springtime when it's doing it all, all it's photosynthesizing. There's a lot of strategic thinking in terms of, you know, what, what grows well in the shade and, you know, high value things like medicinal plants, 
you know, that are using all these strange chemicals that are anti-herbivory chemicals that are actually healthy for us for specific health conditions, ginseng, golden seal, you know, stuff like that, that can have a high value, but grow in the shade and, 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 and have some ground cover value. So on the topic of uh, being strategic about the choice of, of ground covers, one thing, and I believe this is covered in the Edible Forest Gardens book quite a bit, but uh, just wanted to kind of touch base with you on, on your thoughts about it now. The idea of choosing plants specifically because of their bloom timing and their, their peak bloom. I, I seem to remember there was discussion, um, I don't want to misquote you, but you know, trying to not necessarily time it with the bloom of your fruit trees, but maybe outside the bloom or before the bloom to, you know, attract, especially if you're in a more urban environment where there isn't a lot of natural pollinators to, to sort of draw them in. I mean, I like the idea overall of, of, of filling the gaps where your, your other plants are not blooming and filling the gaps by choosing ground covers that, that bloom in the early spring or late fall or something like that. Is that still, is, is do you still think that there's, there's, uh, it's worth looking into, okay, when are, when are my fruit trees blooming? And then, timing other plants in the system around it? Yes, I do. Uh, in natural ecosystems, pollination services are actually a scarce resource. So there's a lot of competition for pollinators, and that is why flowers exist and why they flowers offer nectar to, 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 to insects to attract them, to pollinate them. It's, it's, there's, there's, there's very fierce competition for pollination services. That is something that we have to contend with. And, and so when, when we're talking about a community function guild of plants for bees, for pollinating bees, that is one place where we need to think about a resource partition guild at the same time as we're thinking about that community function guild, because you want to have only your fruit trees flowering when the fruit trees are flowering, ideally, so there's no competition for those bees with, with, between the, the fruit trees and other plants. That, that, now, if you have your own hives, that's less of an issue because competition only occurs when two or more individuals or species need the same resource at the same time in the same place and the resource is scarce. So if, if the pollinators aren't scarce, no worries. You can have things flowering whenever you want. But if you wanna get more honey in your hives, you want things flowering all year long. So they're gathering honey as much of the year as possible and have more to live on during the wintertime. That's just basic beekeeping, you know, flowering times, you know, plants don't read books, as I know I said in the book somewhere, any chart of flowering times needs to be taken with a grain of salt, especially in a time of climate chaos, things are whacked, it's way different every year and I, I you know, it's, it's, a, it's at best a rough guide those those charts of, of flower timing but it's still something to go on and 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 you can get a, a decent a decent beginning sense and then you know I, I this is not something I've done yet but I've I've done a you know pretty good job of trying to choose a range of flowers that that flower at different times in the year but I, what I haven't done yet is tracked what actually flowers and when there are gaps in my actual garden by by observing what's going on and comparing that from year to year to see see if I have gaps that I didn't know I had because I thought I had it covered in my in my design process, you know you can't you can't believe everything in 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 any book, mine included, you know, <laughs> because you know I'm taking my data from various sources like you know the Missouri Botanical Garden has flowering time bloom times in their database, but they're focused on Missouri. They're not focused on Massachusetts. Who the heck knows? Yeah, I would imagine there's quite a bit of variation. And in my uh, my master's work, I was looking at black walnut flowering times and uh, leafing and flowering times, and it was it was pretty staggering, even within the same species, upwards of a month different differences. And I'm sure in other species, it can be even longer differences between uh, even w within the same group. Yeah, and that's that's where you know for the purposes of making sure there's nectar for your predatory parasitoid and, and pollinating insects, you want to choose the aster, umbel, and mint families because those species have multiple flowers in each floret and they're providing nectar. Each plant provides nectar over a longer time period. And so, 
you know, as opposed to a daylily that the flower is flowers for one day and then it's gone and the nectar's not available anymore after one day. And, and so you need a mass of those flowers, you know, with that genetic variation within species or different cultivars to, 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 of daylilies to, to get nectar for, for very long at all. Uh, asters, umbrels, and mints are great when it comes to that, but it's if you're trying to have nothing flowering besides your fruit trees at that time of year, that's hard. And I definitely hear you on trying to keep track of when things are flowering and when things are, are leafing out. When it, my, my tip is is look back in your phone if you take lots of photos. I, I'm always like, when was when was this in bloom or when were these mushrooms coming up last year or the year before? And since I take a lot of photos, I just go back and you can actually find the exact day. I, I actually try to, when I'm taking pictures, I try to use my my digital camera that actually has a timestamp on every, a time and day stamp on every photograph for that exactly that reason. So Dave, I know that ground covers was the, the big the big focus here, but for me, this is something that, you know, has kind of evolved over time in terms of what my sort of like top few, top five, top three favorite species are in the forest gardening context. Right now, it's persimmons. You know, right, right now, like my, my big thing is I've, I'm really, like I tried a Nikita's gift persimmon for the first time, I think, I think two years ago. And just, you know, persimmons are my favorite fruit. Like I can't, nothing, yeah. beats, nothing beats a persimmon, especially yeah. a hybrid persimmon. So yeah. Or, or an Asian, and the, the Asians are even better than the hybrids, generally speaking, because they've been developing it for hundreds of years, but. And so on that topic, just, I'm just curious, you know, what, what are your, what are your favorites? Just a few, a few call outs. <laughs> oh, golly. Uh, you know, I would, I agree on the persimmons. Uh, I, I, I can't say I'm a fan of meter, which is what mostly what I have here. Um, I'm a little bummed. Uh, it's, it's, it's a little too cold for, for Nikita's gift, but um, for where I am, but so persimmons are definitely one of those. I'm unfortunately I am deathly allergic to tree nuts, so that whole category is out for me. But I do love I've got hazelnuts growing anyway because they were I I I I got a bunch of them in a, in a trade, a labor trade, and they're freaking gorgeous. And I'm going to use them for coppice. So, but I you know I mean I it's I don't know I don't I can't I really can't play favorites. I mean I like I like uh, European linden leaves. I, I I'm I'm getting I'm getting to like those more as a salad green. And I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying playing with pollarding those. I love mountain mints. The pycnanthemum species uh, are just incredible flowers. Yeah, those the, are amazing. The, insect, the, the, the insects they draw in are just really, uh, some of them are really unusual and really gorgeous wasps with just, just trippy colors. <laughs> and, and, uh, and they spread around. And I just really, I'm gl just glad they're around. I, you know, I love the, the Packer Aurea I was talking about. When that thing's flowering, man, it just brightens my day. It's just an incredible, incredible plant. And, you know, I get a kick out of the Robin's plantain, the Erigeron pulcellus. It's just, a, it's just a, a, a cute little, fun little plant. And it's a, it's a great basil rosette ground cover I've got under my pear trees that I really, I really like. I mean, I, I love my blueberries. I wish I, wish I didn't have the new uh, spotted wing Drosophila on it you know that, that that is now now in our in my region that makes the berries like not really worth eating uh, that's one oh, thing that's i haven't solved i haven't solved that it's a it's a, it's a you know mo most fruit flies they only will go after damaged fruit but the spotted wing dysophila can actually damage the fruit that's healthy and 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 cause the rot to begin and so it's a real drag i have to say <laughs> Uh, but elderberries, another one. I mean, I'm I even though I have sandy, dry soils, I I'm I'm liking my elderberries, and I'm actually planted some inside my fenced garden near near an irrigation point, so I can make sure I get at least a few every year, rather than having them die in droughts like they did a couple of years ago. You're gonna plant any aronia out there too? I've got aronia. I haven't developed a taste for it. I do make tincture out of that. It's not one that I really like the flavor of, and I so I haven't, but I haven't done I haven't done much cooking with it yet. So, uh, I, you know, I've I've mainly uh, my crops my it's it's not a it's not an annually bearing in my experience. It tends to be biennial or triennial bearing. I get big crops every two or three years on that one. So, I I, I trend I tend to use that more as a medicinal than than as a as a as a, a fruit I eat out of hand or 
or in, in muffins or whatever pies. I'm still limited. Like my one thing, the other thing I realized in the last few years, uh, the house I built in New Hampshire before my divorce, you know, we had a pantry. And so we really thought through food storage a little bit more. This house built in the 1980s for the typical American diet, man, um, American kitchens of the 50s and onward, they're not designed for actually storing and, and, and processing food. It's just terrible. The, the architecture is terrible. And I'm really struggling with that. I really need to build a, a wood shed and tool shed so that I can I can get a lot of my tools out of my basement, out of my what used to be my garage, and and actually put my food storage systems down there because I just don't have space for dry pantry, dry cold pantry, or cold cold wet cold moist root cellar or freezer or any, anything like that. I'm just so limited, and it's, it's really a pain in the butt. <laughs> So. I, guess, I guess for any uh, architects out there who are listening, it's a you know potential PhD project or or whatever. With the aronia, I've found that uh, I don't like even when it does make a crop, the the songbirds get them all. Really, I haven't had that issue. I've had that issue with my with my elderberries and with my um, blueberries. And, and yeah, me neither. Last year, last year I I ended up bagging my elderberries while they were still green. I put uh, I put these, these, uh, I forget the, it's a kind of nylon cloth bag. You can pull over the, and has a drawstring and you can tie it. And that kept the, the squirrels, the chipmunks and the birds from going after my elderberries. And I actually got a decent crop last year because I did that. Yeah. And as far as the flavor goes, I find they, they do best. I don't know, this was in Tennessee, but I waited till like October, like until they're, you know, the very, very last minute to actually harvest. And then that's when they were the sweetest and juiciest. Wait, you mean the aronias, not the elderberry? Yeah, the aronia. Yep. But even then, they're they're kind of like a gr- sour green apple. That's a little bit of astri- at that point, it's a little astringent. If you if you eat it earlier, it's a lot astringent. Um, so, I I have a sense that um, that freezing them first make takes some of the astringency away as well. Ah, haven't tried that. Try that. I'd be interested in your experience with that actually. Yeah, I know that's, that's something that some people do with persimmons to try to mitigate the, hmm. the astringency. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah no, I, I mean, I with the aronia, I just I planted them thinking like, oh, this is something you know, it, or like if you plant blueberries, you know, you expect that you have to net them, otherwise the birds will get them. But I did not expect that with aronia. Yeah. And yeah, uh, I, I suppose I can't really hate on native bird populations for taking advantage. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, you could if, if you if you really wanted to, you could. <laughs> it wouldn't do you much good, though. <laughs> yeah, there's not much I can do there. You know, my 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 big challenge is, is I've created great habitat for rodents and my and my sandy soils. I mean, I can dig a four foot post hole in 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 half an hour here. So I I was up at a client's last last Tuesday, and. Daylight, there was a weasel going after chipmunks. I was like, oh, I need one of those at my place. <laughs> because the chipmunks are just intense because I've created such great habitat for them. And I, I you know, I actually, I have a, a white mulberry tree that, uh, that's, I, I planted, it's a little bit, a little bit uh, not hardy enough here. I came to understand why I was having trouble getting prune, trying to get it to prune, prune it to a shape that was reasonable because the, the tips kept buying, dying back, and then it would it would it'd go all directions, and so I, and and also, but I I just I, I hacked it really hard to start playing with pollarding it uh, this year because I just got frustrated because the the birds and the chipmunks and the squirrels just they eat the berries the the, the fruit like long before they're anywhere near ripe, and so I'm I'm gonna get the get the get the uh, cutting it way shorter so I can have easier access and have a better chance of competing with the with the other varmints on, on getting berries and i'm going to try harvesting them really early and, and ripening them well i hope you get some predators too moving in maybe from the sky and from the ground i've got good hawk populations i actually i actually one day saw a hawk come down and and grab a rabbit out of my yard so <laughs> that was good <laughs> wow but they don't, the, the hawks don't do that when i'm out in the garden <laughs> so, no i wouldn't imagine 
Well, this is this is this has been really great, Dave. Thanks for thanks for sharing your time with us and letting us ask you all these burning questions. Yeah. Well, I, I let's do it again, and uh, it's it's fun for me too. So there's there's so much more to talk about it in 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 all all kinds of arenas, all kinds of of realms of uh, forest gardening. So before we depart, where can people find you if they want to reach out or if maybe they live in Massachusetts and are looking to um, you know hire a designer? <laughs> perhaps. Uh, so I live in Montague, Mass. My website, edibleforestgardens.com, my skimpy, wimpy, low input website is, is out there. You can, you can contact me through my website. My email address is davidkjackie, J-A-C-K-E at gmail.com. Pretty, pretty easy to remember. All right. Don't blame us when you get uh, a flood of emails. When this, uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dave, thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to continuing this conversation in the future. Sounds great, Ben and Michael. Have a great one and uh, happy spring. Happy yeah. forest gardening. You as well. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. Bye. Bye, Bye now.